Hello everyone and welcome to the 41st episode of the Connectivity Podcast. I'm Matthias Fridström and I've spent the last 25 years inside the Connectivity community. In this pod, we invite guests to deep dive into one or many subjects to simply learn more about connectivity. And in this 41st episode, I'm extremely happy to have Michael Potter from Geeks Without Frontiers with me. So, hello, Michael. Greetings. Welcome. So, for the people that doesn't know you, Michael, who are you and how did you end up in this industry? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a, a very long story, but I'll try to keep it short, which is that um, I was uh, a student uh, during the Cold War, and so I wanted to be a nuclear arms controller. And so I spent some time in Geneva uh, at the United Nations doing exactly that. And when I returned to the United States, I ended up working at a foreign policy think tank. But unfortunately, uh, because I didn't have Russian language capability, which was important during the Cold War, they didn't want to put me in nuclear disarmament. So they had this very boring, unexciting field called international telecommunications. (laughs) And they said, you know, do you want to do this? And um, I was I was not so interested, but I said, okay, maybe to myself, I said, I'll do this and then I'll find something better. And that was the moment that the entire industry changed. And I've been doing it ever since. All right. That's that's really cool. So this was about the early 90s or, or late 80s or... Or even earlier. So in uh, really in the late 80s. So uh, okay. I was in Geneva in uh, summer of 86 and then uh, then joined up with this uh, with Center for Strategic and International Studies out of Washington, D.C. And then... Um, Later, I mean, it was very, by coincidence, I ended up getting involved with, uh, we had a presidential space policy transition project. So that was uh, satellite telecommunications. And then I ended up going to the International Space University the very first year it was ever held at MIT in 1988. And that was a very interesting time because we had uh, students from uh, Soviet Union, we had students from communist China, and uh, the event almost didn't happen because uh, there was a lot of reluctance to have these Soviet and uh, communist students at MIT, which is, uh, you know, doing a tremendous amount of classified research project in the uh, MIT labs. But at the last minute, we got uh, the permissions and we got a very unique group of people together for uh, for a summer summer of 1988 at uh, MIT. Oh, that's really, really cool. And this kind of is almost pre-internet. So uh, I guess, yes. uh, what was communication like in those days? You know, Well, it, w- it was interesting because, uh, I mean, you're, you're exactly right. Uh, you know, so we, we go back to the dinosaur times. So uh, probably the greatest innovation was that we had a computer lab filled with Macintosh computers. That was, that was the greatest innovation. And for everybody, uh, all of our European colleagues, our, certainly our Soviet and uh, Chinese colleagues, we were all using it. And so the, the reality was that we, be, we all became pretty early adopters of email, just right, just, just right around that time, a little bit later. We all, and, and so you kept you know, this kind of um, 
you know, almost like a fraternity, right, of a little over 100 people from all over the world who otherwise probably would have had a hard time keeping in touch over the many, many years. And now, you know, people head up space agencies, people have become astronauts, uh, people have run telecommunications, satellite companies, and um, but but all still connected, you know, from the early days of Macintosh and, you know, things like CompuServe and email. And uh, and that's the one constant thing, you know, in my life has always been international in communications. And the one thing, you know, things have changed. I've done nonprofit. I've done for profit. I've done regulatory. But the one thing that's always been consistent has been this international and communications. Wow, that's really, really cool. And then I read somewhere that you were part of uh, a couple of people starting a company in the in the early 90s in the telecom space, you know, challenging the incumbents and so on, you know. How, how was that at that time, you know? Well, so it's very difficult. So, you know, just, and you know, for all of us, we all deal with these uh, challenging issues when we try to hook up the planet. And, um, you know, but it, it's funny because oftentimes these are not really technical issues. You know, generally these turn out to be political issues or they turn out to be regulatory issues. So what started off for me, which was uh, when the wall did come down, and that was a very significant, uh, a very significant moment because until until the wall came down, uh, ending the Cold War, almost the day before that event, nobody in humanity could imagine that would ever happen. It just it was beyond comprehension. Even for people who were experts and people who studied it every day, nobody could imagine that that happened. And um, so, as you as you could imagine, it was complete chaos in the former, you know, Soviet Eastern Europe. And so we had this epiphany, which was, hey, these people need telecommunication because everything was very centralized. And you know, and, and people remember the stories. People would be on the waiting list in Budapest, or they'd be on the waiting list in you know Romania or, uh, you know, uh, some of these other Eastern European countries, they'd be on the waiting list for 14 years or 20 years to get a phone. And this was all artificial, right? This was all trying, you know, power trying to stop uh, citizens. So we said, look, let's let's bring to people of Eastern Europe, let's bring them choice in terms of telecommunications. And, you know, the challenge was we were too early. You know, and these people, they there was no regulatory structure that allowed any sort of competition. And so these things would take years and years and years to resolve themselves. So then uh, after after some time of just, you know, sometimes frustrating, but also sometimes kind of uh, amusing and humorous, you know, uh, after meeting with all these ministries in Eastern Europe, we said, you know what, let's try Western Europe. You know, that that seems like a lot of fun. And the one thing we underestimated was that the uh, monopoly phone companies in all the uh, Western European countries were incredibly monopolistic. Some of the largest employers in these uh, these countries, because they were the PTT, Post, Telephone and Telegraph. And so when we went into various countries in Western Europe to begin competition, trying to offer uh, consumers choices in terms of um, just you know different technical solutions, but also cheaper technical solutions, we were viewed as being subversive and disruptive to the old monopoly regime. So there were tens and tens of thousands of people that would likely have their jobs at stake in each one of these Western European countries. You know, and and I think the irony is that uh, almost every, you know, Western European country was a member of the European Union. And under the European Union uh, law, they had to allow competition. Uh, but but the national 
governments didn't want the competition. So each national government was illegally slowly walking backwards, trying to preserve these tens and tens of thousands of jobs that they imagined were uh, important. And they try to stop innovation, they try to stop disruption, they try to stop choices to consumers, and they try to stop lower prices. And I think, the, you know, the good news was that that's the power and the beauty of the internet. It's just, you know, it, there's just so much power and energy and momentum that the that the most backwards political thinking, uh, you know, it, it didn't allow that. And there was a famous case where uh, we had, uh, and it was actually going back to satellite telecommunications, where we were trying to bring choices into Spain. And the Spanish government was incredibly uh, backwards, incredibly illegal, just were defiant of uh, European law. And eventually we, we took them to the European Union for, uh, for arbitration. And it was in the middle of the summer and uh, the Spanish official walked into the room and he said, he said to the people in Brussels, to the European bureaucrats in Brussels, the technocrats, he said, uh, who are you in Brussels to demand me a member of, uh, you know, the bureaucracy of the kingdom of Spain to uh, require me to come to this meeting? And the good news was eventually we prevailed. But that's the attitudes that we yeah. were facing all, all over Western Europe. And, um, and you know, and, and in certain countries, there was a lot of concern for safety uh, of our of our staff. Uh, you know, the, the the whole incident with the Rainbow Warrior when the yep. French uh, secret police took out, uh, you know, the people who were trying to protest against whaling. They try to, you know, they sink, sunk a ship that was still fresh in a lot of our minds. And we were we were from the, the, the national point of view. They thought we were illegally ripping up the streets and putting in infrastructure or sometimes, you know, going to the local monopoly and having them put in leased lines and so forth. And there was a lot of concern about the safety of our staff and how low some of these governments might go to protect these perceived jobs that they that they had working in their uh, monopoly companies. Yeah, oh, that's fascinating. It's it's fantastic to hear these stories. And I, you know, sometimes you feel that this is still the case in some countries in Europe. There's still large incumbents in there who is trying to defend their markets. But I, I guess the world is a lot better today, at least in Western Europe. But I guess. Since then, you've kind of moved on to, to do other things. And, and what you're presently doing is I, I, I see that you're very engaged in these Jeeks Without Frontiers. Uh, could you tell us about that? You know, that sounds super interesting. You know, what is that? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, the interesting thing is that we have a lot of the origins in our DNA and in our thinking really out of Scandinavia. And so in uh, 1999, um, I was invited to invest in a Danish uh, internet infrastructure uh, startup company called Global Connect. And so that was a very interesting company. So, you know, it was, I think for many people, particularly in Denmark, they said this is this is a very unusual thing because basically it's almost out of a garage, like this idea to do competitive internet infrastructure. And it was just, you know, a very small group of people. And uh, uh, Neil Seabranst, the, the founder of Global Connect, the visionary behind the, the company, he 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 uh, he came to my attention because he had broke the international monopoly between Denmark and uh, Sweden by putting microwave uh, a microwave hop between the two countries. So he ended up breaking that uh, monopoly. And uh, we there was a, a a tender that the Danish government had released, and they uh, they were in the process of expanding some of the highways 
and they wanted people to be able to put in conduits along the highway. And the, the, when that tender came out, it was in the middle of the summer. And the big companies couldn't be bothered to respond because everybody was on vacation and they couldn't be bothered to respond. So the small little you know, band of brothers working uh, almost in a garage, we responded and we won, we won the tender. So we started putting in a conduit along the roads. And eventually, you know, after 15 years, we ended up uh, developing 15,000 kilometers of fiber uh, throughout Scandinavia and uh, in Northern Europe, in including sea cables. We did a number of sea cables as well. And I think that, um, you know, that's really the power of the thinking and the power of the idea. But the important thing is that we learned a lot about how do you extend fiber networks in a commercial way? You know, how do you trade conduit? How do you trade fiber? And so then the epiphany came like, how, how can we use this to uh, in a nonprofit context to help people all over the world. And the, the Danes had a very, um, you know, kind of funny sounding law, which was a little bit like dig once. And it was it was it was something like uh, common uh, common housing, you know, uh, legislation. And it basically said that, hey, there was a, there was a requirement that uh, monopoly facilities allow for uh, for new entrants to get uh, uh, access to the, the telehousing. And that was the name of the legislation, but that's essentially, it was it was dig once. So we said to ourselves, I wonder if this could be renamed so it could be recognized globally. And in our view, what about all these countries in Africa, countries in Asia, countries in Latin America that haven't even begun paving roads or even building roads? What if we put the infrastructure in at that moment? And so that was really part of this vision called uh, dig once, you know, so the idea is that when you build, uh, build a road, you think about smart infrastructure, you try to put in all the infrastructure at the same time. And the one thing we didn't want to do, which is something that is very pollutive, is we didn't want to build the roads. And then the moment you build the roads, you start digging them up and then you say, oh, yeah, we forgot to put the conduits in. So then you put the conduits in. And that's for fiber. But then a year later, the guys who do the cable TV, they said, oh, you know, we, we should have done cable. So they dig up the road again. And then, you know, then the guys who do the water say, hey, we, we really should be redoing the water. So the water system, those pipes are like 15 years old. It's time to rebuild those pipes. Let's dig up the road again. So we started proposing a smart, smart infrastructure. And it was interesting because for us, Originally, it was like, hey, this is super efficient. This is very, from an engineering point of view, this makes a lot of sense. It's also very, very cheap. Uh, and the one thing we hadn't really considered was that there's also a lot of resilience uh, characteristics when, when the infrastructure is put under the ground. And in particularly, you know, uh, in particularly countries that have a lot of hurricanes, uh, countries that may have earthquakes. Uh, we just saw, um, you know, last week these terrible fires in Hawaii. And it's interesting. A lot of a lot of those uh, power cables are all above ground. Uh, they're all above ground, and they put them through trees. And the problem is when the wind kicks up, you know, it whips these cables, and then those ignite fires. And if it's dry and it's windy, you get these terrible problems. So it's like in the United States, this is now one of the worst wildfire fire fatality records of all time, and it's totally preventable. And the issue is that. And this is, you know, this is the same around the world and, and maybe not above ground infrastructure, but the people who do the roads, oftentimes they're monopolies and the people that do power and electric or who do uh, oftentimes the, the telecoms are often monopolies. 
And so they don't really, they're not really incentivized to work together because the road guys are like, I don't want to wait for those. I'm just going to do what I want to do. And the power guys are like, hey, I don't care. I'll just charge it to the rate payer. They'll, they'll end up paying more money every month. I don't care. It's not my problem. And so all over the world, people don't cooperate. And um, so in uh, 2017, we created uh, a model uh, law. Actually, it's 2016. We created a model law for dig once and so it's an it's an open source law any country on the planet could um pass this law and uh we put that out there and we competed in something called the global grand challenge awards and these are like big ideas that have the possibility of positively impacting a billion people over 10 years and we were uh finalists uh in that uh that that competition so really this idea that you could positively touch a billion lives over 10 years if people were to adopt these policies, to adopt this architecture, to adopt this engineering. And, you know, it's kind of humble because it all came out of Scandinavia. And it's just it's a global it's an gl- open source global concept now. All right. That's really cool. So, so where are you now with this project? You know, you said it started in 2017, you know, six years later, you know, what's going on and and how do you select where to go? You know, I guess some want it, some doesn't want it. Some are afraid of it, you know. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, so and that's right. You know, many people are afraid and it's, you know, any government, it, it'll be some ministry that's afraid of it, you know, that somehow they'll lose control, they'll, they'll lose jobs, they'll lose something uh, and they don't want to cooperate, you know, and, 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 and it's kind of normal. I mean, it's sad to say, but it's normal in most countries and particularly, you know, particularly in developing countries where most ministers seem to hate each other, like the minister of education, he'll hate the guy who's minister of infrastructure. It just it's just, you know, it's just politics. And so they don't want to work together normally. <laughs> and it, when it does happen, it's fantastic. Like where they, you know, they, hey, these guys been an old friend. We love to work together. And, and you know, they, they think about, hey, it's about the students. Right. And I think that was one of the lessons of covid. Right. Which was that nobody wanted to cooperate. And then all of a sudden, you know, you had all these students that had to study from home and there just wasn't infrastructure. There wasn't devices. Uh, there weren't incentives. And I think it got to a high enough political level in almost every single country around the world. where People said, you know, it's really about the kids. But before that epiphany, there wasn't a, a tremendous amount of cooperation. So when we released that law, you know, there was uh, we did in Washington, D.C. and uh, went out with a press release. And so we asked ourselves, we said, hey, who, who do we think the first developing country that will come to us to ask for assistance and trying to speed up? these dig ones policies. And we were a little bit surprised, but it turned out to be the U.S. government. <laughs> so the U.S. government came to us and said, we need help in this field. And so we uh, they named two two of us um, as advisors to what they called the Broadband Deployment uh, Access Committee. It was a it was a, the BDAC. It was an acceler- accelerating broadband committee. And so we worked with, um, you know, with a working group trying to speed up uh this uh, this effort and this was before covid so i mean a lot of the stuff was very uh, very relevant but we get calls you know from all over the world where people are asking on how do you do this uh they're interested in it they like it to become part of their um, legal system and um, we and in fact the asian development bank just uh, issued a major report on the subject we were part of that process that goes out to countries throughout asia and uh, and and it will get to the point eventually where uh, these multilateral lending agencies like the World Bank, like the Asian Development Bank, that they will start to require like, hey, if you want a billion dollars to do this, 
that means you have to do it smart. You, you, you know, we don't want you to spend a billion dollars and do it in a stupid way that it's not as efficient. And I think that's uh, that's eventually how we have to solve this problem. All right. So, so basically, if anyone contacts you right now, what type of support do they get? Do, do you have an army of people that you put in or do you put in just knowledge or what, what is it that they really get? Yeah. So, so normally the way we do it is um, we, we try to share best practices. We try to share uh, models. But, you know, um, we have colleagues around the world that, you know, consult on these sort of things. And so if they, you know, they, so they're, they're happy to read all this stuff for free. It's all available. We're happy to coach them, you know, uh, you mm-hmm. know, just o- over the phone. But if they need something more serious, we have trusted uh, colleagues and consultants around the world that do this. And we put them in touch and then they, um, they, they carry it forward. Okay. Are, are there any good examples out there? Anyone that has gone, gone somewhere well, uh, with this? Uh, just because it just came out a few weeks ago, I, I, I really like this Asian Development Bank model where, you know, we um, there was a number of, uh, of third party um, advisors that advised and reviewed the reports. But to be built into those reports so that they get pushed down to the country level. Uh, so, you know, that those reports go on to the Philippines and so forth. Uh, and by the way, we're on the ground in the Philippines today, not specifically working on dig once, but we're working on connecting schools. But we're always available for that. And we get contacted frequently. And we always start off. We have, you know, um, our uh, open source model law. We have you know, a lot of times people want to know some of the econometrics behind it. They want other, you know, uh, they, they want some case studies. We generally share those. Those are, you know, also open source. We're happy to share that stuff. It's just that when when we get involved with where they're saying, hey, we, we want to uh, customize this for our legal system or, uh, you know, often, so, so for uh, just as an example, the European Union now has this legislation. Uh, it's not always enforced, but uh, it, it exists at the European Union level. Uh, that legislation at the EU level is very specific to the EU. So there's a lot of uh, very technical EU jargon that's in the, the that legal system. So it includes like no state aid and, you know, and it is very, very specific. That doesn't translate to other countries around the world. So all that stuff has been stripped out. But sometimes when you go to these other countries, uh, they may not have a minister of roadworks, but they have may have a minister of infrastructure. So they may need customization help with trying to make it consistent with their uh, legal system. All right. Thanks everyone for listening. In the next episode, we will continue to talk to Michael Potter. So stay tuned until next time. Please also remember the X handle, not Twitter, X handle, connectivity pod for updates.